if we were to, as a church, if we were to look for someone to become our next prospective elder, what would we look for? And what kinds of qualifications would this person or should this person have? What kind of resume would you expect? What kind of educational background does this person need seminary education? How helpful is that? At what seminary? With what degree? Um, what kind of work history would be, you know, would we look for in an elder? Uh, what kind of church work history or ministry ideally should this person have? What kinds of talents? What kinds of skills uh, would we feel like it would be important for this person to become an elder of Christ Church? Let me just share an anecdote. So I don't have any statistics to back this up. So I'm not talking about some statistical truth or something that can be proven statistically. But anecdotally, when I graduated seminary in 2013, uh, you know, my classmates and I, we all went to this church, big church, and, uh, you know, they, they had the graduation ceremony and all of us got up and uh, received our diplomas and et cetera, et cetera. It seemed to me at that time that when me and my class, when my classmates and I got up and received our degrees and sat down and they had the commencement ceremony. And as soon as the commencement ceremony was over, all of us were gobbled up by, by these churches. Um, many of us, I would say nearly all of the classmates that I knew and the friends that I knew had at least one, if not two, if not three, offers from churches, all who were ready to make us elders, teaching elders, associate pastors, pastors, sometimes even lead pastors and senior pastors all of us you know at that time i was actually one of the older people in seminary because i had uh graduated undergrad and worked for a while um and then stuff wasn't working out and then i actually found work at the seminary first and worked there for a couple years and then became a student so i was uh actually in my 30s when i graduated a lot of the classmates that i graduated with were fresh out of undergrad and went directly to seminary and now here they are early 20s and they are going to be elders pastors lead pastors in reading today's text i wonder in hindsight whether that was such a smart thing to do for those churches let me push the envelope a little bit further I wonder if it's even possible for any young man, let's say a recent seminary grad, I wonder if it's even possible for any young man recently out of seminary to qualify for the office of an elder just because he has the degree. And the reason I say this is this. If we look at today's text, you find, in my count, you find 16 traits or 16 qualifications of an elder. 15 of those 16 have to do with 
character. Only one has to do with ability, the ability to teach, which, by the way, uh, is not actually an ability that seminary teaches you. The ability to teach is not the only ability in all of this, these 16 traits, is the ability to teach. And seminary actually doesn't really prepare you to teach. I think in my seminary degree, there was maybe three preaching classes. And I think only four total times that I had to get up in front of the class to preach. Only four. And then they said, you're ready to teach. But even aside from that, there are 15 out of 16 that focus on character. And so my question is, for those churches that hired us, and I'm including myself in this, for those churches that hired us and wanted us to be pastors, how much did they know about our character? Besides what we wrote to them in a resume or in an application packet, how much did they know about our true character? So this is what we're going to talk about today. What are the L, uh, qualifications for an elder? Uh, we're going to, this is a long text, there are 16 traits. So we're going to break this up into two sermons. And we're not going to be able to cover all 16 traits one word at a time. So what we're going to do, we're going to categorize. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about these broader categories where these words sometimes fall into these groups. Okay, we're going to talk about three categories today and then next week, uh, part B, we'll talk about three other categories. Today, we're going to focus on these things. The first, the Bible talks about character over ability. Second, the Bible talks about having a good moral reputation. And third, the Bible talks about um, being gracious and not harsh. I had six points in my head and I just wanted to make sure... I, I talked about the right six, uh, three points today. Character over ability, um, good moral reputation, and being gracious and not harsh. So first, let's talk about character over ability. Like I said, in this text, there are 16 traits of a bishop. That's what it says in the text. That word bishop is actually our word for elder. Uh, yes, it's a word for el uh, overseer. But it's the Greek word presbyteros, which is how we trans where we get our uh, word for Presbyterian. Okay, um, we don't have to get into too much detail of this, but basically, it's where we get our word for elder, overseer. This is uh, a shepherd, a, an over shepherd um, for the church, for the church of God, for the flock. Um, of these sixteen traits. 15 out of the 16 have to do with character. Only one, like I said, the ability to teach, have to do with ability and skill. Now think about our initial question of how would we select an elder. Uh, maybe we would receive some uh, references. Maybe we would do an interview. How many of those uh, things on a resume talk about character versus skill or work experience? How many questions in an interview have to do with skill and work experience and what would you do in this situation versus who are you? Who are you in private? Who are you when the days are bad? What is your character? Why does the Bible place so much emphasis on character? Well, one reason is God is like that. We read in 1 Samuel 16. This is why we chose it for our Old Testament reading. 
God does not look at outward appearance, but at the heart. God looks at character. If God looked at work experience or ability or skills, definitely Jesse's other sons had more than David because they were older. A couple chapters, I think it might be the next chapter next or uh, in Samuel or a couple chapters over. Uh, they're actually able enough to serve in the army to fight the Philistines. But all of them lack character because none of them were brave enough to go fight Goliath. But David was, who lacked the skills and the talents and the stature and the height and the age and the strength. But he had character and God used it, right? So one reason why character is emphasized over ability is because that's who our God is. He looks at character. But another reason why character is so important is because of what God says about the church in the last days. What situation or what circumstance the church in the last days is going to find itself in. Okay, this comes from Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, as Paul is about to leave the Ephesian elders for the last time. And Paul knows he's not going to see them again because he's going to Jerusalem to get arrested and maybe put to death. But this is what Paul tells the Ephesian elders, not just about the Ephesian church going from there to the end days, but also to all churches, to all of us, about what the church is going to be like. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here, Paul talks about these false teachers, savage wolves that come, not from outside the church, but from within the church, who lead the flock astray, who teach false things. You know, some of the most dangerous heresies in the church came from within the church rather than from outside the church. Okay, yes, I know there are some churches out there that have been influenced by Buddhist and Hinduist and, you know, uh, mystical... Eastern thought outside, right? And they become very mystical themselves. But think about some of the most destructive heresies, let's say, in the evangelical church or even in the Reformed church that have come through our own pastors and our own seminary professors and teachers. You know, if there's a pastor that brought you to know the Lord, that has shepherded your family, that actually has a good relationship with you and your family, and you actually like the guy, and he starts to say something on the pulpit that you're like, oh, the Holy Spirit's like, I'm not sure that's so in line with God's word. It's really hard to listen to the Holy Spirit at that point, because you have a lot of trust with this pastor, this person inside the church. And yet, Paul says, these false teachers from inside the church, they are savage wolves that will tear apart the flock. So the question is, how can we tell if it's that difficult? How can we tell whether somebody's a right teacher or a savage wolf? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in Matthew 7. This is why we read it in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 15 to 16. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. There, Jesus 
I mean, Paul uses the same metaphor that Jesus is using for false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you and they are inwardly ravenous wolves. And this is what Jesus says to us about how we can tell them apart. You will know them by their fruit. He doesn't say you will know them by their teaching. He doesn't say you will know them by how popular they are, how big of a platform they are, how many books they've written, how many seminary degrees or how many seminaries they've taught at, how many conferences they've spoken at, their work results, you know, the, the, the greatness of their ministry. He basically says you will know them by their character. You will know them by who they are, by their fruit. One of the ways, one of the major ways we tell a ravenous wolf inside the church is by their character, by their fruits. And historically, we know this is true. Right? Again, think about all the heresies that have gone down, especially in the evangelical and reformed church, let's say in the last 50 years. What are some things, commonalities with, with all these heresies? Well, they're all, almost all of them led by a very charismatic leader, right? A really good, charming speaker. This charismatic leader often has a lot of fame, a big platform, many books, many conferences, thousands of congregants, multiple church sites. And they always, almost always, they, they'll, they'll throw at you a bunch of scripture that sound 99% true, but then they'll twist a word here and there. You know, they'll say things like, well, you know, salvation is not by works, but it's in accord with works. <laughs> okay? They'll twist a word here and there. And so, so you're assaulted by all of these things. And it's really hard to tell. It's like each layer of fame and popularity and charisma of the leader is like another blinder that you have to try to see through in order to see the truth. It's really hard. It's really hard when a seminary professor that you look up to is the one that you realize later, oh, that's not exactly how the Bible taught it. Okay? So what is one way to cut through all of those blinders? The Bible says it's by looking at their character, by their fruit. But if that's true, if that's true, then we must say two other things are true, right? If character is so important to God, then two other things are true. One, it takes time. It takes time to know somebody's character. You can't know somebody's character by a piece of paper. By a resume. You can't know somebody's character by an interview. Maybe two interviews or three. I would even say this. You can't know somebody's character by seeing them in church every Sunday for two hours. Because we all know the truth. We all know the reality of human nature, don't we? That when we see each other for two hours on Sunday, we are seeing each other's best PR representative. Okay? We are seeing... <laughs> Look, guys. I'm friendly with y'all. I love y'all. But... I know I am, in some ways, putting up my best PR representative. I know you guys are putting up your best PR rep because this is how human nature works. All right? In order to really know somebody, know somebody's character, especially if they have bad character flaws that they're trying to hide, what do you have to do? You basically have to live with them. Okay. It's not practical for us to all live in a commune together. Okay, so the next best thing is you got to spend a lot of time with this person. 
You have to spend a lot of time with this person to get to know the person. Maybe a work around that is you have to spend a lot, of, a lot of time investigating people that do live with the person and ask them, who is this person like? You know, ask the wife, ask the children, ask the parents, ask the in-laws, <laughs> okay? Right? Because the wife might not give you the whole story. The parents might like you, so, so they might give a stranger the whole story. But the in-laws don't have any loyalty, right? So the in-laws will certainly give you the right answer about how does this person, who is this person really like at home? How does this person treat you, the in-law? You have to take the time to know somebody's character. Going to push the envelope a little. Not, it requires just not time. Maybe it requires some trial. Putting the person through some ringers. Some trial, some hardship, some maybe some difficulty, right? Because a person's true character comes out when things are hard, when times are hard, when the heat is turned up a little bit. Now, I know that, quote-unquote, to make a candidate suffer a little, that's not a great sermon point, okay? And I'm not advocating that. But it is a matter of fact. That when times are good, it's easier for us to hide whatever character flaws we have. But when we get stressed, when we meet a difficult situation or a difficult person, when we get hurt, when we're angry, whenever you know the emotions are high, that's when the true character comes out. We know that as a fact. And other professions do put their new people through the ringer, so to speak. Think about doctors, right? Why do they have residency? Why do they put them through not just one area of residency, but multiple areas of residency, right? To put them in difficult situations to see how they would respond, right? And if they don't respond well, you teach them, right? This is what you didn't do well. Next time, do this. I work in a law firm. We don't just take new attorneys out of law school and say, you go take this trial, right? We make them do rounds. Maybe take a little part of this case. Maybe be second chair in here. Or maybe take, not the trial, but the, the previous steps before a trial. See how they handle. Maybe let them handle a difficult client. See how they handle that. How is their customer service? How is their patients? Right? And then talk to them. Now, I don't have any great practical solutions for how to do this. Okay? But maybe here are some examples. For somebody that we're looking to become an elder, uh, for an elder candidate, let's give them less praise, just automatic praise. But let's speak more truth in love. In love. I'm not saying hammer the person or, or, or destroy them, but we need to speak the truth to this person in love. If we see something about their character that's not according to the word of God, we need to tell them. We can't baby them. You know, if we coddle people, if we spoil people, right? We're never going to find out things about their character because it's only when the heat is turned up that the true character of somebody comes out. Maybe we let candidates deal with difficult situations alone for a time to see how they respond. Not Again, not to see them fail and not to cause them to sin, 
but just to see how they handled a particular difficult situation, not to baby them all the time. And then after they'd say, look, you did this really well, but look, I, I saw that in this situation, you lost your patience a little bit. This is for your better good for ministry later on. If you're going to become an elder, you're going to have 10 times more difficult of a situation. You're going to have to be 10 times as patient, you know, let them learn. Let them assess themselves, let them repent, and let them grow. Speak the truth in love. And do this before we make somebody an elder. I think what happens a lot of time in churches is we take this passage and we hope somebody is all these things. We make them an elder and we hope somebody is all these things. Hope. No, the text doesn't here say hope. The text says these are qualifications. Before you make somebody an elder. Before. It's not a hope. And then later on, you hope you don't find out. And if you find out, then you kind of try to cover it up and deal with it. So the first thing is, character is much more important than ability. Second, the person must have a good moral reputation. Some of these words like blameless. Husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, not given to wine. These are all words that fall into this category. This person has to have a good moral reputation. What do we mean by this? Well, take the word blameless. The word blameless here uh, doesn't mean perfect righteousness. If it meant perfect righteousness, then all of us would be disqualified. No, Nobody would be qualified as an elder except for Christ. Okay? But the word blameless means this. You're not perfect, but your character is so good that even when others want to slander you and, uh, and attack you, that your character is of such good quality that others can take a look at themselves, at you and the whole picture and say, well, that's obviously slander against this person. That's obviously not true against this person. Okay. That's what the word blameless means. It means even when you are attacked, that when others take in the whole picture about you, they will know that you are of good character. You are blameless. You are without reproach. That's what that word means. Temperate. Uh, I think some biblical translations say self-controlled. This is what that word temperate means. Literally, it means to be free from drugs, intoxicants like drugs, free from illicit substances. Okay, if you are addicted to an illicit substance, your mind is not under control. Your mind is under control of whatever substance you are abusing. That's what that word literally means. We can broaden the definition to all addictions, any addiction, gambling, pornography, money, whatever. Uh, fame, you know, popularity, whatever addiction you have. A temperate person is not addicted to anything. A temperate person has self-control of his mind so that the decisions he makes, the actions he takes are based on his own mind, not based on the influence of other things. So when an elder is telling you to, oh, you know, our church is falling short on, um, you know, our budget, so let's give a little more. You can trust that he's not saying that because he's influenced by gambling and he's in gambling debt and he needs more money himself. 
Okay, that's what that word means. He's temperate. He's self-controlled. Sober-minded. It's like the word temperate. It means the ability to control your own desires and impulses so that they don't get out of control. Um, actually, this word is very uh, illustrative. It's actually, uh, part of the word is actually the Greek word for our diaphragm. You know, if you think about the, the diaphragm, uh, the diaphragm is the muscle that controls your breathing, controls your speaking, controls your singing, like we were singing a very highly tuned, you know, pretty high-pitched song before. Um, it's, a what, it's, a what, it's what allows you to speak in a loud voice, but yet controlled, where I'm not screaming and yelling my top off. That's the diaphragm. Um, so just as the diaphragm is able to regulate and control and moderate one's breathing and voice and sound, a sober-minded person is able to regulate his or her own desires and impulses. All of this to say, a good moral reputation doesn't mean perfect righteousness, but it does mean that your moral character is good enough that even when others attack you, basically they don't have any grounds. And, and, and people around you can just say, well, I know this person enough. And taking in the whole picture, this is just baloney or this is just outright slander. The best example of this is, of course, Jesus on the night he was betrayed. And they brought him before the Sanhedrin, right? Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 59 to 60. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. They tried to do it with Jesus, right? Many slanders and many false witnesses, but Jesus' moral character was good enough that none, you know, none of those charges could be found. Last for today, an elder must be gracious, not harsh. Gracious, not harsh. And there we find words such as not violent in verse 3. Gentle, not quarrelsome. You might ask the question, well, how can you be gracious and still stand for the truth? Right? We talked about at the beginning how the church in the last day is going to be in, uh, uh, inundated with these false teachers within her own ranks. Savage wolves who teach false things. So you have to stand for the truth, right? So how can you stand for the truth and be firm in that and still be gracious, not quarrelsome? You know how hard it is to not quarrel with a heretic or a false teacher. How can you be gentle towards a false teacher? How can you be both? Well, let me say it's possible. It's possible because Paul did it. Paul did it. This is Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 and then verses 7 to 8. This is how Paul talks about himself. And we know Paul stood for the truth. Okay? He stood for the truth. He didn't budge. He was firm. But this is what Paul says about his own ministry in Thessal uh, Thessalonians. But even after we had suffered before... And were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So there he tells the Thessalonians, 
Even though we were persecuted before, we were still bold. We didn't lose our boldness. And we spoke boldly about, we didn't flinch about the gospel of God, about the truth, even in much conflict. But then he says in verse 7, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. So you see, Paul was able to be a standard bearer for the truth, be firm, and be gentle at the same time. It wasn't like he picked one to be one one day, and then, you know, uh, firm one day, and then gentle the next day, and then flip back and forth. No, he was both all the time. We say, how can this be? I think those of us who are parents, we can relate to this really well, right? Me and my wife with a young son at home, we're learning how to do this, how to be firm about our principles and lessons to our son, and yet at the same time be gentle, not harsh, not quarrelsome with him. He can be both. We're not pushovers. Definitely we're not pushovers. But we're also not harsh with him. It's, it's speaking truth and love to a little one. Okay, you can be both. It's not like to our son, we are, you know, really firm on the truth and really harsh one day. And they're really gentle and lackadaisical and just, you know, uh, permissive the next day. You know, that'll confuse him. We're, we need to be both. And we try to be both all the time. It's possible because Jesus was like this. Right? Remember the words of John in the prologue of John. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus wasn't full of grace one day and full of truth the next. He was always full of grace and truth. And if this Jesus, if we are being conformed into his image, as it says in Romans that we are, then it's possible for us to be full of grace, to be gentle, not harsh, and truth at the same time. Let me conclude again with this. It's easy for us to agree with today's passage. It's even easy for us to assent with today's passage, right? Assent means not only knowing this passage, but saying, okay, everything says it says in here is true, right? That's what assent is. Everything the Bible says about character is true. It's easy to even assent to this text. But it's much harder to apply. Much, much harder to actually apply. Of all of my classmates, including myself, who graduated with me 10 years ago, how many of us were qualified at that point to be elders according to these qualifications. And again, I think what happens in a lot of churches is we get it backwards. We make somebody an elder first because of a degree or ability, purported ability, and then we hope, we hope they are these characteristics and we hope we don't have to find out something bad. And then when we do find out, we try to cover it up because we know we've made a mistake, right? That's what sinners do, right? That's what we do when we sin, we try to cover it up first. And then when others get wind of it, then we try to get rid of the, uh, uh, it creates a scandal, and then we try to get rid of the scandal. And that's not how it works. 
we need to ask ourselves the question, will we as a church be willing to follow these qualifications, to really know these qualifications before we make somebody an elder? Character is easy to hide. Bad character is easy to hide. Really hard to find out. Really hard to find out. It might take a while. It might take some time of speaking truth and love with a person, some trial. But in the end, it's worth it because we will be living in obedience to God's word. Might not be expedient, right? We talked about that last time. Right? Might take a while to find an elder. But in the end, we will be blessed because we are following God's word. Next time, I will talk about the, the other uh, three categories. Uh, but may God give us the grace. Uh, <laughs> may God give us the grace just to follow these three categories. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your, your, your standards. Because they are holy standards. They reflect your character. But not only that, they are practical standards for the church because if we follow them, we would do the best, most loving, and most protective thing for your flock. And we know how important your flock is to you because you gave your life for them. So Lord, help us. Help us to, to, to not only understand and assent to these standards, but help us to, to truly apply these qualifications and standards to ourselves, to our future elders, um, and, and help us to have a mindset where we're not just thinking of how hard and how difficult it is to meet these standards, but help us to have this mindset of loving your flock, of protecting your flock, and seeing your flock as how precious they are as they are in your sight. So, Father, we, we pray for your grace. We pray for your provision for our church, that we would have more elders in the future who do fit these qualifications. And, Father, give us the, the strength to stand on your word. Give us the, the courage to not flinch from these qualifications. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.